Take your scriptures with me and open to John chapter 17. We've been walking through this gospel, basically one chapter at a time. And it's very difficult on many in many of these chapters. I know that Pastor Matt and I have shared often that we want to keep to the simplicity of each chapter as a whole. And yet sermon series of at least four to six sermons could be made out of each chapter. We understand that. But again, we're going to look at John 17, most often referred to as the Lord's high priestly prayer. And we're going to try to look at this together. Of course, some themes will not be able to develop uh, that we will give attention to this Wednesday. Here really, here is the big idea. After John chapter 17, Jesus advances and marches towards his imminent death. That's going to unfold in the next week as far as the time frame. And as he does, as he advances to conquer death and offer himself as a sacrifice, he is concerned with primarily three things. He is concerned, first, that the Father is glorified. He is concerned, second, that his believers are protected from the evil one. And he is concerned, third, that those who will believe will live in unity because that is part of their mission to the world. And we need to understand right here at the beginning, right before Jesus prays, that this will be the line of attack the adversary takes. This is where he will launch an assault. He will try to give worthless idols glory. He will try to have himself considered as an ancient fairy tale relegated to all the other cultural myths. And he will try to get us to live in disunity. And so our Lord, our high priest who moves forward to make the once for all sacrifice for us, prays first for himself, then for his disciples than for his disciples whom he has not met yet. The portrait we have of Jesus in John 17 is staggering. The disciples asked Jesus, teach us to pray. Jesus gave them a pattern of prayer, often recited in churches. It becomes part of liturgy. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy... It's a great pattern. This is the Lord's prayer. Not a formula for success. Not a pattern to be recited. Not simply a three-step process to have your wishes granted. What you're given here is a glorious snapshot of the union of the Son with the Father. You're given a glimpse into the relationship with inside the Trinity of the subordination of the Son to the Father. Co-equal but functioning differently. Jesus addresses God as Father six times. And John 17 is an opportunity for us to consider Jesus' consciousness as He approaches His own death and sacrifice for the sins of the world. Once the prayer is ended, and as far as John is concerned, we have been, we have been moving through the earthly life of Jesus Christ as He puts forward these signs But once this prayer is ended, 
The next week's events happen in rapid succession. You will have his arrest. You will have the injustice of both religious and secular ruling powers. You will have the shallow flashpoint of the brutality and hatred of man. You will have the acceptance of a guilty insurrectionist over a man who only ever showed love and was full of grace and truth. And then in John 19, he will be lifted up as he said he would be on a cross. A cross kind of death which deliberately delays death until the maximum pain and affliction has been enacted upon the so-called criminal. And here in John 17, sandwiched between Jesus' final words to his followers and his death, is Christ's complete dependence on the Father through prayer. It really is amazing. And he prays for himself, not in the same way we would pray for ourselves. He prays for his disciples. Guess who else he prays for? He prays for you. That's in the third section. Prays for disciples whom he had not met yet, but whom he knew he was dying for. He prays for you. Prays for me. And we're reminded that the Son looked beyond his imminent death to the glory that he would resume once again with the Father that he had before the world was created. And he gives us an example of how to face our trials too. This is what it looks like to walk by faith and not by sight. This is what it looks like to set our affections on things above where Christ sits at the right hand of God. Because John chapters 18 and 19 are not the final word. John will move forward and he will record the resurrection and the resurrection appearances of Christ in John chapter 20 and 21. So death for Christ is a triumph, not a defeat. The resurrection, a victory. And now we'll look at what concerns weigh heavy upon our high priest's heart as he intercedes in prayer. John chapter 17, verse 1. Verses 1 to 8. It's the first section. And there really is only one request, one petition in this first section. Look at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, okay, the final address. Okay, the last part of that final address in John chapter 16 Oh, just look at those last words. Look at the last verse of John 16. Look at verse 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Now consider the events that are about to transpire. And Jesus is saying these things to his disciples who will be scattered and fearful so they will have peace. In the world you will have what? Tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Here's the request. John 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, and we have every reason to believe He said this out loud in the hearing of at least some of His disciples. John, who's recording this. He said, Father, the hour has come. Okay, that hour, His death, His sacrifice, the hour of glorification, which will soon then follow after that is the exaltation of Jesus Christ. The hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. 
since you have given him authority over all flesh. Right? He is Lord. There is coming a day when at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Believer, unbeliever. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is the Lord over all flesh. He has authority over all flesh. Since you have given Him authority over all flesh, verse 2, to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. This is one of the difficult sayings in this prayer. Salvation is initiated by the Father, not by man. Romans 3.11 No one seeks after God. This Wednesday at 7 p.m. when we gather for our adult Bible study, we will take a much closer look at this and we're going to develop two themes that we will not develop this morning. And the first of those is the doctrine of election and predestination, which is scattered throughout the New Testament. And secondly, the doctrine of Satan and spiritual warfare. Both themes touched on in this text that we will not develop this morning, but that we will give attention to on Wednesday. To give eternal life to all whom you have given him, verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is where John began his account. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Jesus says this to the Jewish leaders, before Abraham was, I am. Now in his prayer, he's saying, glorify me with that relationship, that fellowship, that union that I had with you before the world existed. Verse 6, I have manifested or I have revealed your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were. And you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Five times, Jesus uses the word glorify. This first section is, yes, a prayer for himself, but it really is a consuming desire that the Father be glorified in the Son's work. Five different times. Glory. So the question is, what does it mean to glorify the Father? We're familiar with the term doxology. That comes from the Greek word here, doxa or doxazo. And to us, a doxology is a short hymn of praises to God. And that's exactly what glorifying is. It's ascribing worth. It's magnifying, it's exalting, it's worshiping. Jesus described it like this in verse 6. I have manifested your name. And he returns to this thought again. Look at verse 26. I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. See, the name of God represents the totality of his being. It's not like a name like you and I are familiar with. 
the name of God reveals his character. To accept his name is to accept all the claims and his entire character that belong to his name. It's not simply intellectual knowledge, but an acceptance of his claims. This is why John will say this in John 1 verse 12. To all who did receive him, listen, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The incarnate Son, the Son in the flesh, is the revelation of who God is. You say, well, I wonder what the Father is like. Read the Gospels. Well, I wonder how, I wonder how God the Father would respond to a woman caught in adultery. Read the Gospels. I wonder how God treats those that are overlooked by society. Read the Gospels. That's the character and the nature of God. That's His name. John says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen His glory. There's that word. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is a priority of the Son. To manifest God's name. To make it big. Last week, after the Super Bowl win, a single player is chosen as the MVP of the winning team, of course. This year it was a man who registered again in a very big game, 2.5 sacks and two forced fumbles. And if you were watching and you saw him kind of in, with incredible speed and tenacity move behind his opponent and reach out and force a fumble, which was then recovered for a touchdown, which put his team up 10-0, to what is the reaction of Broncos fans? I mean, whether you're in the stadium in, in, in full view of thousands of people, or whether you're in the privacy of your own home watching it on television, yes! Right? We've got no problems with our hands in the air and emotion. Yeah, I mean, we needed to go up to... And, and we are making someone's name big. And at the end of the game, he is selected. And everyone who lives in this state, for the most part, now knows Von Miller. And just yesterday, as we were heading up Broadway to Spear, there was this little handwritten sign stapled to a telephone pole. Way to go, defense. Players' names are being made big, and one in particular, Von Miller. He's being glorified. I'm not saying we're worshiping him if we're cheering, but his name is made big. It's on signs. It's on news headlines. They're talking about it. Monday morning, we're sharing coffee and we're joyfully talking about the win and especially the player by who? Or the play by who? Von Miller. And we're so hoping, I mean, this is how much he's in our minds. We're so hoping that we get him to sign again and maybe put the franchise title on him. His name is made big. Jesus' concern in this first part of his prayer is that the Father's name is made big. When Queen Sheba traveled to confirm rumors of this other king, it is recorded that when she heard about the fame of Solomon and his relationship to the Lord, I'm reading out of 1 Kings 10, 
She came to test Solomon with hard questions, arriving at Jerusalem with a very great caravan with camels carrying spices, large quantities of gold and precious stones. She came to Solomon and talked with him about all that she had on her mind. Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too hard for the king to explain to her. When the queen of Sheba saw all the wisdom of Solomon and the palace he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials, the attending servants in their robes, his cupbearers, and the burnt offerings he made at the temple, she was overwhelmed. She said to the king, The report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true. But I did not believe these things until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told me. In wisdom and wealth, you have far exceeded the report I heard. And she gave the king. Do you know that glorifying someone includes tangible expressions of worth? When people are overwhelmed by the glory of something, they have no problem giving expressions and tangible gifts. And she gave the king 120 talents of gold, large quantities of spices and precious stones. Never again were so many spices brought in as those the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. King Solomon gave the queen of Sheba all she desired and asked for. Isn't that interesting? She expresses worth, overcome, overwhelmed is the word, by his fame and his glory that she gives. And in return of that glory ascribed to him, he gives to her whatever she asks. The next detail will show you some of this glory. Then the king made a great throne covered with ivory and overlaid with fine gold. The throne had six steps and its back had a rounded top. On both sides of the seat were armrests with a lion standing beside each of them. Twelve lions stood on the six steps, one at each end of each step. Nothing like it had ever been made for any other kingdom. King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. Year after year, everyone who came brought a gift. That's glory. Yes, Von Miller. That's glory. These people are made big. These people are ascribed worth. Great gifts are given to these people. That's glorifying someone. And Jesus does this in his life, in his obedience, in his miracles, in his love. He makes the Father big. Matter of fact, after the first miracle, it said that when the disciples saw his glory, they believed in him. God is made big. You know, we are told in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether we eat or drink, or whatever we do, do all to the glory of God. How have we made God's name big this week? How is God's name made big here? Right here with this group of people. How in, in a world that minimizes Him and dwarfs Him and eclipses Him and makes Him small, how have those who truly believe made Him big again in eating and drinking? 
Because yes, it includes death, but it also includes every aspect of life. It includes eating a burger and drinking iced tea. How do we make God big doing that? Well, we eat and we drink with thankful hearts. We work with contentment and integrity. Husbands love their wives as Christ loved the church. We drink coffee and guide the conversation Godward. We share the normal stuff of life with hurting people. We use our home and hobbies and kids' sports to nurture relationships with unbelieving people. And when we do that and we point people towards the goodness and tender care of a loving God, He is made big. He's glorified. We do this in our suffering too. Jesus looked beyond His impending death to a glory He would have with the Father and He was able to embrace it and be victorious and glorify His Father, to make His Father big. Listen to what two disciples said, two men who most likely heard this prayer from Jesus' lips. James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive future glory, the crown of life which God has promised. The promise is something about the future. God has promised this to those who love Him. Listen to what Peter said. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, present tense, If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found future to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter goes on to say, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you present." as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Future. Do you see the connections? That's what glorifying God looks like. It's not simply striving for a life that is absent of pain, but accepting the pain and making God big. It's not simply pursuing things that are the absence of suffering, but on the path of suffering, we make God big as we look forward to a future glory. And like the psalmist says in Psalm 73:25, Whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. That glorifies God. So Jesus in this first section, His single request is this. God, may you be glorified. May you be made big. The work that you have given to me is complete. Yes, he still will die. The incarnational work is done. And his whole desire is that God is made big. Now look at what he prays next. Verse 9. Not only prays that God be glorified, but he prays for the protection from the evil one. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. Second time he says that. For they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. 
And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. Verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. He's talking about Judas. But now I am coming to you in these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. Later on, John will write this in 1 John 5, verse 19. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Jesus knows we remain here. We now, under the power of the Holy Spirit, fulfill His mission. We are extensions of His mission. As we live out our union with Christ, And the fellowship with the Father, we are an extension of this mission. And like our Master, the disciples like their Master, will now grapple with who? The Prince of Darkness. The Evil One. Matter of fact, Jesus warned Peter. He said this at the end of Luke. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. You know what Jesus says next? But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Our Lord knows that in this life we will go through a testing of our faith. And when that extremity comes, It sounds like this in our consciousness. I don't even know that I believe in God anymore. Well, it sure doesn't seem fair, this exclusive message we preach that either you are safe in Christ or there's no hope at all. I mean, that just doesn't seem right, that kind of an exclusive message. And not only are we questioning these things as our faith is tested, but then a hostile secular world is attacking us and minimizing and eclipsing God. And it is an extremely difficult trial to walk that path. But you need to know this. Jesus has prayed for you. He prayed for His disciples here. And He goes on to pray for us. Look at verse 16. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So, down what line then will our great adversary attack as we live in the realm of the evil one? As the prince of darkness sort of reigns in this fallen world, down what line will the attack come? Against truth. This is why it is imperative that we understand what core doctrine is. That we embrace and protect, in a sense, the purity of core doctrine. We don't add to that 
our own list of things we want to be part of core doctrine. But core doctrine are the very things that if you change, it changes the message of the gospel. And we are sanctified by the truth that is revealed in the Son and through His work, but also by the truth and the words that He speaks. And He prays this, just like we prayed this morning. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Verse 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Here's here's what Jesus is praying. How does Jesus consecrate himself? He is holy. He is sinless. He's the son of God. What is what is him then setting himself apart for? What he's doing here is your high priest is he is consecrating himself to the mission that the Father sent him on. And the mission is this. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. That is the purpose of the incarnation. That is the purpose of the mission. He did not primarily come to set an example He did not come to give us a moralistic law code by which we would follow his steps in in behavior only, but he came to give himself as a high priest a sacrifice. Hebrews says this, Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. As Jesus prays in John 17, He is consecrating Himself to complete His mission. That's what allows Him to boldly advance in triumph towards death. And our sanctification is accomplished by this truth. The final section of prayer begins in verse 20. Just as Jesus prayed for His disciples, He now prays for followers He has not yet met. Look at verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, through the disciples' testimony, through the written gospels, through the letters of the apostles. This is how we are set apart through truth. His word is truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. He repeats the same petition he prayed for his disciples that he was with. And he repeats it again for those of us who will believe. We participate in the joy of the union of Christ and reconciliation and fellowship with the Father. You know, this unity... This profound unity should be a norm among all God's people. Look at verse 23. I in them and you in me, 
that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Do you know that we are loved by God with the love of the Father towards His Son? And do you know what expresses that to the world? Do you know what makes God big in the world? I mean, Jesus already said this in John 13 and in John 15. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have not just love, but love for one another. So that we love one another as Christ loved us. How did He love us? Were you deserving? Even as a believer, have you walked perfectly? Has your attitude always been right? Have you always spoken truth? I don't even agree with some of the things I may have preached three years ago. The core doctrine, yes. But some of the emphasis and the application. I mean, have we been perfect citizens so that God said, oh yes, now they are lovable. Is that how Jesus loved us? We were enemies. We didn't seek after God. We didn't understand And God in His mercy and His grace sent His Son into the world to die for us as a gift of grace to undeserving people. And what the world needs to see is a community that lives out that reality. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. This will be repeated by Paul when he says this in Ephesians 4, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Well, why? Because there is one body and one Spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We need to be very careful. We're not beginning to call brothers and sisters enemies. We need to be very careful. We're not allowing Satan to come down this line of attack. What was on the heart of our great high priest? The glory of the Father. Protection from the evil one. Unity among His people. He will attack against truth. He will attack against unity. We are not guarded from this attack, folks. This church has been under attack. We as God's people have been under attack. Like Peter, Satan desires to sift God's people as weak. And His intentions are wicked. But Jesus has prayed for us so that your faith may not fail. And so we must come back with a common confession. There is only one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Spirit, one hope, one faith. One God and Father over all and through all. Look at verse 24. He closes his prayer now. 
Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. That's, that's, that's our journey. I mean, we've got our passport. Our suitcases are packed. And this is where we're heading. That they may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Two points of emphasis as Jesus is praying for his disciples. Truth and unity. Truth and unity. Unity together with love constitutes an essential prerequisite for our witness to the world. Do you know when unbelievers will begin to consider our truth claims? Not when we show up individually at a door and walk through several facts on a small piece of paper. Yes, God can use that. God has used that. But you know when this community is going to start to believe our truth claims that there is one Lord and Savior who forgives sin? They're going to start to be... I mean, just read read the prayer. They're going to start considering our truth claims when they see us living out our union with Christ right here. When we love as Christ loved. When we live in unity as Christ shares that unity with the Father. And with this prayer offered, Jesus advances triumphantly towards his cross work. Thomas Manton, English Puritan, wrote this. Divisions in the church always breed atheism in the world. I think Thomas Manton read John 17. And from our Lord's very own concerns, wrote something that pointed. But the reverse could also be true. Unity in the church always breeds faith in the world. Verse 23. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. When we live out our union with Christ, we will glorify the Father and the Son We will understand we are on mission in enemy territory and we must confess the truth and be set apart by the truth. And we realize our mission to the world is inseparable from our unity with other believers. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for your word, how it does sanctify us. It sets us apart. It is a unique calling to live this out. Lord, we pray even as David that You would restore to us the joy of our salvation. I mean, until we are overwhelmed by You, we will fail to express Your glory appropriately to this world. I mean, until we are in awe and undone even disturbed by Your fame and Your glory, Lord, until then, we cannot appropriately express the worth of Your name to a watching world. Nor will we understand the danger of being in enemy territory. And we'll begin to add things to Your truth 
and we will not live in unity. Thank you for praying for us. We pray now that our affections would be stirred to make your name big, that we would be alert and sober-minded, knowing that our adversary walks around like a lion seeking whom he may devour. And may we live out the union that we enjoy in Christ and the fellowship with the Father. May we live that out here. May you create here at Highlands a culture where when unbelievers enter into it, they're overwhelmed by the love and the unity so that they begin to consider the truth claims expressed here through your word. Help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let our music team forward as we respond to the revelation we have heard out of John chapter 17. As we sing and make God's name big, we praise, we ascribe worth, we honor Him by singing not just words, but by worshiping in spirit and in truth.